Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show, and watch your life grow. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Show, and uh, we've got an incredible guest uh, on the show with me today. Uh, she is uh, multi-talented, multi-faceted. Uh, she is an author. She is a filmmaker. She is a philanthropist uh, and uh, a real mover and shaker in the world and someone that the world definitely needs. Uh, she uh, is uh, uh, promoting her latest work called Finding Hope uh, with Molly Quinn, uh, and she's just doing some great things in the world. Uh, I would like to welcome Diane Nam. How are you, my dear? I'm great, Philippe. Thank you so much for having me today. It is such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, it's awesome, man. I, I looked at all of your stuff and, and the film, and it was absolutely amazing. And What's interesting to me is, you know, uh, recently, kind of um, within the last couple of years, uh, there has been, uh, uh, you know, talk about human trafficking, uh, which um, uh, was kind of like hush-hush for for so long in the media. Uh, And uh, now it's becoming more mainstream. There's a lot of celebrities that are getting behind it. And then here you come along with something that I had never even thought about, uh, and also would associate with, you know, old times uh, as opposed to current times. And, and that is the, uh, I guess, what, what, there's a, a particular term uh, that is used for this. What is it called that, that's dealing with Molly Quinn's uh, uh, story? Well, Finding Hope is actually um, kind of a combination or a sequel, if you will, to the first film that I did, which she was also in, um, called The Sacrifice. And um, so the main premise that began this whole series of of events was that I had discovered that in modern-day times, actually, not not even in history, in modern-day times, there are polygamous cults living within the United States who basically, um, you know, cloak what they're doing in religious freedom, and what they're doing essentially is using children for slave labor, for sex, for and, and, and calling it marriage. And, and basically breeding the children within their communities to use them in this fashion. Um, they're not limited to the United States. They're obviously everywhere around the world, but they also exist in the United States, in Canada, and in Mexico. They're not, a, they're not a huge section of the population, but there's enough of them for us to be concerned that there are girls living in this manner, um, and young boys, too, as a matter of fact, who are, who are particularly ill-treated by the same cults. Um, so the first movie I made called The Sacrifice, which, if you don't mind my saying, is available on iTunes. Um, and it's one of the first films that Molly appears in. Um, she's also co-starring with um, Chris Mulkey, Richard Reel, John Lindstrom, and Darby Stanchfield, who's on Scandal. Um, they give wonderful performances, and it's about the day that a, a polygamous cult leader comes to take a 13-year-old girl from her family, and that family resists him. And when that... Mm. Um, and when that story, um, which was also kind of right before the whole West Texas compound was busted with all those kids and stuff like that, 
when that story broke, a lot of people were then concerned, well, what happened to this little girl? And so Mm -hmm. in the intervening years, Molly and I had talked about wanting to do another film that was, um, you know, kind of a sequel to The Sacrifice um, to show, to tell people what had happened. And during that Mm -hmm. time, I'd also done a lot of writing mentor workshops at at at-risk facilities like group homes and rehab centers and heard a lot of stories of teen runaway girls, a lot of things. A lot of things that have happened to them, and a lot, wow. of, a lot of stories that were never going to get told, um, and that I didn't want to tell in the context of those individual girls because it would either mm-hmm. put them at risk or it would somehow compromise their their attempts to to, to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I so I took that little girl from the sacrifice, and I pondered what would happen to her if three years later something happens that makes her life at home so untenable that she has to run away, and then what does a girl like that who's never been out in the world face when she gets to a big city and has no choices, you know, not safe at home and nowhere to go? What wow. That girl. That is amazing. And that's finding hope. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's extremely powerful because when I, when I watch this piece, um, you think, oh, my God, this is happening right now as I'm watching this. Uh, this is happening in real time. This is not, quote, unquote, cliche, a movie. Right. Uh, you know, and even it's very hard. I... It's very difficult. What do you do uh, as, uh, as just a human being uh, who now is aware of this? What do you do? Um, you know, there are... There are a lot of organizations for a lot of different of the uh, you know of the events that you may be the, be part of. I mean, if you see teen girls who obviously are alone or obviously on the run or or obviously un, you know unprotected in some way, um, you know instead of assuming that they're on the street of their own volition or that they're on the street because they they actually want you know to to be selling sex, there are tons of of hotlines to call where you think that there may be trafficking victims. Um, the FBI has one. Local police enforcements all have one. The states are now enacting all kinds of different hotlines. I don't have the, I don't have the numbers available to me, but I mean, e- each day every state becomes more and more active or proactive in the, in the effort to rescue trafficking, um, you know, trafficking workers and to give them an opportunity to call. Um, if you are familiar with girls who are in a hard place at home and you see what's happening or if it's your friends and you see what's happening, um, you know, there are also hotline places to call in terms of, you know, domestic abuse. And then for mm. the kids themselves, there are places like um, like Covenant House, like Children of the Night in Hollywood. I mean, each and every city has its own organization. Um, part of what I was hoping to do with Finding Hope, the film, once the film has seen its, you know, its time on festivals and, and been distributed, is to sort of is move it into a television series, where at the end of each at the end of each um, per episode, we would provide a hotline number um, for whatever was specific to that that evening's episode um, and the activities that were involved during that, you know, the event. Wow. In that episode. Um, as another way of just making this like easily accessible on phones, on you know screens, on anything, where people should call, so that it just becomes an, it just becomes as easy to remember as nine one one because you've seen it weekly. Um, so that's that's the hope. I mean, the fact that human trafficking has become such a um, such a, a hot button issue for so many people is in fact just wonderful. I mean, in the fact that it it, it just it's not a it's not a dirty secret anymore, and nobody's blaming yeah. the people involved. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, we hear all the time on on certain sets uh, when movies are made of uh, about very heavy, heavy topics uh, and real life subjects. How you know it's it's very difficult sometimes for uh, the actors and the director to uh, the actors to to get into a particular role, and for directors to be able to explain the role that they need to get into. Um, in, in, in Finding Hope, uh, with the gentleman who was playing the role 
uh, of this, of, of, you know, kind of, if you will, the monster in the movie. Uh, were, were there any times when, when, when uh, people were, you know, going through the script and uh, getting the sides and, and uh, uh, kind of rehearsing together? Was, it, was there any time on the set when it was very difficult for them to uh, uh, repeat certain scenes and, and read certain uh, uh, aspects of the script? Um, well, let me mention my entire cast of Finding Hope because I was, in fact, the luckiest director in the universe. <laughs> uh, to have not only have Molly Quinn, Richard Reel, Chris Mulkey, James Morrison, Kristen Dalton, Ray Abruzzo, Andy McKenzie, um, uh, forgetting somebody, uh, Christine Elise, Karen Landry. I mean, I had, I had, I had a cast that only. You know that that some people only dream about, and that you only get once in a lifetime. Um, and as for your question about each of the difficulties, whether they be villain or whether they be Molly's role, or or even the young man who was who was in the cellar, um, each of them, each of them, you know, sort of brought with them their own methodology. We did not have a lot of time for rehearsal. It was a low budget film, and so. You know, they kind of each came, they they brought it with them, um, so to speak. I mean, we did as many takes as we needed to in order to be able to get what we what we what we got. Um, but 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 certainly what they brought with them, you know, had cut down dramatically on rehearsal time. Mm-hmm. The thing to keep in mind, though, which I think every single actor um, actor I've worked with, and you know, is the earmark of a professional is that they find the humanity, they find something to like or to be proud of or to feel comfortable with, mm-hmm. with their character. And that's what makes, in Chris's case, the evil that much more frightening. Because mm-hmm. um, he and I talked about that, and the truth is is that the Rev character sees nothing wrong with what he's doing. Mm. He feels he's acting out of love, which goes to to his own backstory and to the depth of his own character and his own upbringing. But he believes he is the patriarch of a loving family. Wow. And in believing that, he acts accordingly. Mm. And Amazing. That's what each and every actor brought to it, is that they believed with all their hearts, that their characters had the, you know, had whatever good they needed to, in order mm-hmm. to be able to do what they were doing. Unbelievable! How long did it take you to uh, shoot this from start to finish? Uh, we shot in eight days. They wow. were, they were, even though you wouldn't know it, the rainiest eight days. Uh, it might be seven days, but we had to take one day break. Um, uh, we had the rainiest se- the week that you'd ever that you could possibly have imagined, could possibly have imagined. And I mean, I also have to mention that my producer Eric Mofford and my director of photography Mark Peterson were awesome. I mean, this train moved along at the pace it was supposed to each and every day because we had you know only a specific amount of money and a specific amount of time and mm-hmm. availability for all of the actors and. They just moved it along, and we made sure we got absolutely every shot we said we were going to get. Um, and and it was it was kind of like you know lightning in a bottle sometimes happens. Mm-hmm. That's what those days were like. Because despite the fact that it was a downpour like no other, somehow my crew <laughs> managed to figure out how to pretend it wasn't raining. I mean that was a miracle. <laughs> that was amazing. Now, how long did it take for this to get to those eight days? I mean, uh, there's obviously a lot of great planning and uh, making uh, phenomenal work of, of, of this level. Um, talk to us about the process uh, from uh, inception to, to uh, uh, you know, first day outset. Well, the script took a little bit of time because, as I said, in, in finishing the sacrifice and wanting to do something with Molly, I knew I wanted to do something about what would happen to her later. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I guess it took us it, it took a fair amount of my um uh, of my real world exposure to stories that had actually happened for the for the story to ultimately take shape. Um so I would say that although I did not work on the script, you know, nonstop, it took about two years before the script was was, was where I wanted it to go from where we had been. Mm-hmm. Um and then you know I I know a lot of people feel this way, and I think it's just the best thing to do, which is that you prepare as much as you possibly can ahead of time. I mean, obviously, the things you can't control, the things you can't control, but you prepare as much ahead of time. So I would say that our prep time was maybe four months. Um, okay. That we knew exactly what we were going to shoot. We knew exactly where the scenes were going to be. We scouted to make sure that these were the least expensive but the best possible production value in each of the locations. Um, and so once those three to four months were ready to roll, we also had to make sure that it fit with all of the actors' schedules because they were all very busy people, um, especially Molly's schedule, you know, for Castle. And um, so serendipitously, December was the time uh, when we shot. Wow. So we shot for, for, I think we went from December 10th to December 18th with, or December 20th with like a day or two in between when we had to stop um, so that everybody could rest. Because it was, yeah, it was, how long was post? hard days. Sorry? I said, how long was post-production? After you got it, everything was in a can, that was it? It was a wrap? Uh, um, because I wanted everything to be beautiful um, and because money is, is slow and hard to come by, um, we waited for the sound design place that we could afford that we knew would be doing the best possible place. Mm, okay. Um, and then, uh, which was Hacienda Post. And then we waited for the best possible color correction place. And for them, they're also a busy place. Keep me posted. They're very busy. So we wanted to make sure we got in to see them, you know, and have them do it. And then I had to just make sure we had the money to pay. And so it was a slow process getting it to the beautiful beautiful film that it looks like now mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and only with the with the assistance and the, the skill and care of everybody involved and my editor Lindsay Mofford who is is just one of the most all-time best editors in the universe yeah. um, <laughs> she just, you know she just is um, you know she I wanted her to have enough time so that before we locked the picture we were happy with absolutely every single moment and every single shot Mm-hmm. So I wasn't I wasn't trying to rush this because I just really wanted this to be the best it could be because I didn't know if I'd ever have enough money to make anything again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so. Right, right, that makes sense. <laughs> this had to be it. Well said. So, so okay, obviously you did. You got the money to get it done, and uh, you've got uh, the New, uh, Newport Beach uh, Film Festival. Uh, coming up where it's going to be a uh, screen. Uh, but after that, what and where can people find uh, this film and be able to see it, watch it, share it, uh, take notes, and take action? Well, I think that what we since we're just at the very beginning of doing festivals for this, um, we're waiting to hear from a number of different places as to where it may be screened in the next, you know, I'd say in the next eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after the next eight months, although a couple of distributors, including the one who first picked up the sacrifice, um, is interested in distributing it, I'm just waiting to see what my options will be, um, mm-hmm. and then I will have a better idea um, because it may be available on iTunes. Uh, we may decide to go with a different streaming, different streaming entity. It just depends on what I think will be will be the you know the most effective way of getting of getting the film out there. Okay. Um, but we have had a lot of interest in it, and I just have to sort of determine what what I think will be best for it. But what I think what's best for it now is that it go to the festivals because I think once people see the film, um, they get a different take on the reason why kids end up as runaways, and they get a different take on what happens to a runaway and what their options are. And I think that's, that there's a value in that. Absolutely. Now, you, you come from a philanthropic background. You're the uh, uh, executive artistic director of, of, of West Broadway. 
which is a 501c3. Um, talk to us about that and what you do there and how you uh, empower uh, children. Well, you know, whenever anybody asks me, you know, what are the things that I love most in terms of entertainment, my answer is always, you know, books, theater, and film. And because I was, a, again, a, I was doing mentoring at at-risk at facilities, I was doing these writing workshops, and I would, when talking to the guys I was mentoring, you know, give them kind of like writing shortcut tips to say, oh, it's like this story or it's like that story, and usually referencing sort of children's classic literature stuff. And the boys looked at me as if I had three heads, and they didn't know what the <laughs> heck I was talking about. And they were just sort of like certain that I was speaking a language that they just hadn't heard. And, in fact, that was true. So we sort of, it, it however stupid it was that I didn't know this before, it became clear that there was a large segment of the population of our youth who have not been read to in terms of children's stories. Wow. Stories that I loved as a kid and that made up my entire imagination and that I filled my children's heads with when they were young as well. And mm -hmm. um, Because to me, reading was, you know, reading was everything. I mean, I had a lovely home in Brooklyn with my parents, but somehow reading was the thing that I dissolved into, and that was my entire life. Mm. And and, um, and when I realized that that was not the case for so many people, um, and I do, you know, I have written a bunch of children's books, and a lot of them are classic adaptations. And so what I decided was that perhaps a good thing to do would be to develop a nonprofit theater company which adapted children's classics for, for a modern audience, made them interactive, and then would bring the children's attention to the fact that these books existed at all, because I guess so many of them were sort of like dusty on shelves and not mm -hmm. used much. Um, and it would then sort of motivate them to go back and read those original classics if my adaptation was funny enough and if my adaptation was interactive enough. So I founded West of Broadway, and that's what I started to do, you know, on a very shoestring budget because um, – because low-budget theater is a lot more low-budget than low-budget film. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, uh, I was able to, I adapted a bunch of different <laughs> stories that mattered to me. Um, so, for instance, I turned Peter Rabbit into a Star Wars spoof. So it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bunny Wars Episode 4. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um and um and then I turned the Christmas Carol into Mrs. Scrooge and then ultimately made Mrs. Scrooge a musical. And so for several years we put on these productions that I I sometimes I charged the public for, um, but then I would hook up with um like the Children's Development Center in Santa Monica or any of the at risk facilities in which I had writing mentored and I would just do the shows for those audiences. Um, so that they could expose the kids to the story. Uh, I did Huck, uh, and I said it in the time after the flood of Katrina, so that you know it had some kind of a modern sensibility for the kids. Mm -hmm. And then they, I would always put the biography of the author of the original story. Um, so I found that it, when it was in the program and an excerpt of the old story, that the kids would then go back and read stories by Mark Twain, or read mm. by Beatrix Potter or by Charles Dickens. And okay. I almost always put the author into the play, and then the kids always feel like they've met the author. Mm -hmm. a special, you know, a special kinship when they are going into a store or a library and saying, well, I met Mark Twain, I'd like to read his book. <laughs> oh, wow, nice. <laughs> um, so, you know, knowing that that was the, that that's how that worked, um, West of Broadway gave me a lot of joy in terms mm -hmm, of sure. Now, you have written over 65 children's books? That is correct. What, what, what do you sleep? Do you believe in sleep? Do you <laughs> have a sleep disorder? I mean, <laughs> you're making films, you're doing, you're doing a run in a 501c3, you write 65 children's books. My goodness gracious! Um, <laughs> you obviously love children. That's 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 blatantly obvious. Yes, I um, do. So talk to us about writing sixty-five children's books uh, <laughs> over, 
<laughs> over the course of or the span of uh, you know, I guess ten, twenty years or whatever. It's been ten or twenty years, yes. But uh, still, sixty-five bucks. Anyway, uh, oh, what what inspires you to write uh, so many stories? Because I mean, you know, the writing process. Everyone, you know, there's there's obviously a large group of people that are like, hey, I I am creative, but there's no way in heck I could write sixty-five children's books. You know, uh, run run a nonprofit uh, dedicated to books. Uh, and then make film uh, and, and screenwrite and all that. I mean, you, you talk about right-braided. I mean, is, is your forehead like oddly shaped? I mean, uh, you look great on uh, from the photos that I've seen of you, but, I mean, is there any, like, deformity that we need to know about so we can get this level of creativity out here to, uh, and duplicate it somehow? My goodness. Well, you're you're a modest man because you're pretty creative <laughs> yourself, so I, I read about you, too. Uh-oh, I know you did. You're a filmmaker. Yeah, you're a researcher. Uh-oh. Okay. So, if we're going to talk about amazing human beings, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to go back to you. Oh, this is good. She's trying to reverse it, but I'm not going to let you. I am not going to let you because I'm on the 65 children's books. I mean, I think this is fantastic. I just, you know, there's just so many things that uh, can go wrong, even in a great household. And without stories and books and and literacy, uh, it's just that child grows up just with, I think, a, de- a lifelong deficit. That's right. what my missing, personal belief is. Exactly, missing missing something, and I yeah, I I'm personally opposed to that. <laughs> yeah, I would. Have- <laughs> it's really hard to that. Um, yeah. But- uh, you know, I started out when um, I first graduated from college in publishing, mm-hmm. um, which is when I was living in New York. And um, so children's book publishing became, in fact, my very first profession. So mm. I worked on the other side of the desk as an editor for a long time, um, about, about seven years, okay. um, before I moved to L.A. Um, when I moved to L.A., I found that it was really hard to do the publishing editorial part of it from Los Angeles. Um, and so that's when I really started in earnest to concentrate on the freelance writing element. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I did a couple of YA stuff, YA uh, novels then, and then I also continued to do um, anything from preschool up. Um, so a number of the publishers with whom I had worked, a number of the editors with whom I had worked when I was in publishing, you know, we stayed in touch, and if there were books that needed to be written, then they would contact me. And so I ended up, for some reason, I guess serendipitously, adapting a lot of children's classics, um, specifically for Sterling Books, um, which was also a division of Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I do even today. I have, I think... Um, there's a series of fairy tale books called the Silver Penny Books, five of or six of which have already been published, and four more which are coming out, I think, later this year. Um, and then Roman Myths, which is a collection or a compilation of um, of Roman mythology, which is a sequel to my Greek myths book, mm-hmm. um, is coming out this later this year as well. Um, so, I mean, you're right when you say I love children and I love everything about either advocacy for or entertainment of. I think that's kind of been co-joined in my DNA since mm-hmm. forever. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think that the responsibility is, is both. You know, I feel like the entertainment needs to be something that's nourishing, and I feel like the advocacy needs to be something that's protective. Um, well, I think it's beautiful because um, in the world of Hollywood, even though you don't necessarily – are not necessarily of Hollywood, um, you know, this voice, your voice uh, and vision, needs to be heard and seen. Uh, And I think it would be a breath of fresh air um, in the the industry. Um, Now, how do you handle that, though, being in still, unfortunately, a male-dominated industry? Well... Um, I guess I don't – I mean, you know, I'm I'm more interested in what it is I can accomplish myself within the means available to me, howsoever. 
mm-hmm. I, I'm not I'm not looking to I'm not looking to be mainstream in the sense that I recognize that's probably not my path. Um, there are lots of very qualified, very hardworking, very talented um, people who are who are working in mainstream Hollywood in terms of the films that come out and the you know the franchises and the and the box off the big box office things and and I think that you know maybe in a different life I could have been part of that but I'm not looking to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for me the the reason I even started to become a filmmaker um, and the reason I even started to to do theater is I just decided I wanted to tell stories that matter and I wanted to tell them to people who may or may not necessarily know them. And that in doing that, if I'm giving, you know, a voice to people who have none, or if I'm telling a story that somebody says, oh, my God, I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's kind of where I'm, that's kind of where I put my emphasis. It's where I, it's where I feel my strength lies. Because I well, that's know just things definitely that people, what happened to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, you know things that people don't. And I'm, I think it's important that people do. Absolutely. How do you you tell them? Well, you pick pick a medium that people want to watch. Yeah, I I think I think um, uh, well, uh, in terms of all of your films, but but in particular, uh, the the sacrifice of finding hope, I think, uh, should be a family event. It's like you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sit down as a family. We're going to watch this. This is happening to. Uh, some little girl, some little boy in the in the world in this country right now as we're watching this and dialogue about it, talk about it. What would you do? How would you be an advocate? You know, and and, and I think that those kinds of events, conversations is what changes the planet. It's what makes you know the world, the, the certain part of the world, a great place to live and be. I, I agree completely, and, and I mean, I guess I get. I guess, again, I feel sort of like the same way I do about children's books and that there would be plenty and that children's imagination be enriched that way. I think that if you, if, if if what you're saying happens, which would be great, is if it's a family discussion and a family event and then the children are determined to do something in their own lives that makes sure that things change, then then that's just what I, that's just what, all I could hope for. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful to know that you are a seed in the uh, process of, of evolutionary growth and maturation, you know. It, it, even though it might look really, really small in one sense, but in another sense it's, it's huge because it's something that lives on uh, even after you are, uh, you and I are no longer here. Uh, but it, it's 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 something that needs to be done, uh, and it's a beautiful thing that it happened uh, in this time uh, and this place for us to be able to know about it. Now, and, you know, the interesting thing is is that, and I and again, I can't I can't say enough about the actors and the crew and everyone who becomes involved in the projects that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, honestly, they could do something else. They could do something far more lucrative. They could do things mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, easier. Mm-hmm. Um, they could do things that were that were less painful to, to you know to sort of to explore in terms of their own personal sure. involvement with the character. They could have, um, and they didn't. And when I when I write something and and people like that come together, it's kind of you recognize that it's actually important to lots of people, not just me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, and 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 that that makes my you know that makes me smile. It makes my heart warm. It's just it's all of those things because sure. there's a very limited amount of time that everybody in Hollywood has, and yet they always have time for a good project. A project yeah, a good, yeah. A project with a good heart. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Now you you know. Uh, obviously, we're talking about uh, you know all of these wonderful aspects of you. Um, I want to get in uh, one piece, and that is one last piece, and that is uh, you, you know you do you got a play called Love Letters. I do. Uh, again, this lady here, she just does not believe in sleep, ladies and gentlemen. 
she believes sleep is bad for you. Uh, you. You know, she probably tells the kids, don't go to sleep because you'll miss out on being able to do all of these things that I'm doing uh, currently in my life and still man- manage to somehow be sane. I have no idea how she does this, ladies and gentlemen. I will try and meet with Diane personally and maybe just open her up, brain up or something. I don't know, but I'm going to figure this out because I want to get some of this. I need to get a little bit of this in my, uh, you know, you think I do a lot. No, I'm looking at this and saying, I don't know how in the hell she does all of this. <laughs> God. So now Love Letters is a play that you've done with, uh, that, uh, that you're directed with Sam Elliott and Catherine Ross uh, at the Edie Theater in Santa Monica, and this comes out in June, uh, the end of June. Talk to us about that. So, uh, there's there's a the Broad Theater in Santa Monica has a space a smaller space called the Edie Space, um, which is about a hundred person theater as opposed to the five hundred one. Um, okay. I say this because tickets are limited. We're trying to make this sort of an intimate relationship as opposed to a large um, a large performance. Mm-hmm. Um, now Sam and Catherine have been married for many years, um, and they've never appeared on the stage together. Um, as part of my um, wow. working in theater, I'm on the board of the local Malibu Playhouse, which is sort of this little butterfly, you know, it's sort of this caterpillar in a chrysalis becoming a butterfly kind of thing, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in which we're hoping to be able to, you know, raise funds enough to be able to make it into sort of this little gem of the theater where people feel it's a destination to go so that theater is, also available on the west side in addition to the Geffen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so as part of that fundraising effort, since um, Sam and, and Catherine also live live in Malibu, um, they very kindly offered to do this one-night-only reading of love letters. And um, I'm very... I'm very excited about it. One because they're two such great iconic actors, but mm-hmm. also because um, having never appeared on stage together, this will be a hist- an historic moment. Sure. Um, and it'll just be fun because to see the dynamic between the two of them in this context will just be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, are you going to film any of this, or the making of, or uh, is this um, just going to be a one-off where you know it's just going to be a memory to those who who attended? Uh, I think it's very possible that it may just be a memory for those who attended. We are selling meet-and-greet tickets so that we have a small reception, a small little wine-and-catered reception afterwards for those who buy those tickets, mm-hmm. um, you know, to be able to sort of meet them, shake their hands, talk to them, say, you know, say whatever they need to say, um, which will be in the outside courtyard space at the uh, at the, uh, at, at the ED space in the Broad um, on June 29th at 7.30. Okay, all right. And I do have well, to mention one other thing, just because sure. I just discovered it. Um, May 8th last year, I was part of a, of a documentary crew that had 50 different directors that wow. spent a day in the life of Pasadena Unified. And it turns out that this May 8th, in the Arclight Cinema in Pasadena, um, all of the 50 films, uh, which are just four minutes each, are, and and they've been they've been woven into a uh, into a full length documentary. We'll be screening mm. at the ArcLight in Pasadena, um, and I guess the story that I did is one of the ones that may be more prominently featured for that particular evening. It's about a young female scholar athlete uh, in the Pasadena school district, um, and basically it's called Go Public, and it's kind of just a an articulation of what public school can be, what public school is lacking, what public school needs, and why public school is important. Incredible. Um, so I just wanted to say that that's going to happen May 8th um, from 6 to 10 at the Arclight Cinema in Pasadena as well. Wow. That's beautiful. Now, you know, again, for the lady who, does, who doesn't sleep, um, <laughs> what other projects, TV projects, and film, film what, what are you working on? What's in development? Because I know you have something coming down the pike. Every time you have something coming out, there's always something coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have um, a documentary that um, we're currently in post-production on. It's a documentary that I did a short film for um, about a young gentleman who 
at the age of 13, left his Burmese village um, because his people were basically dying from neglect and preventable disease. And and he left knowing that um, he could only come back if, if he could save them because they were just sort of targeted for this ethnic cleansing mm-hmm. that, the, that the formerly um, rigid Myanmar regime had, had exposed them to. You know, no infrastructure, no health care, no education, stuff like that. So at the age of 13, he ventured forth, walked from the jungle seven days, walked to the capital, learned Burmese dialect proper because he only knew his tribal dialect, went to high school, graduated, walked to India, I mean, this is the brief version, went to college, taught himself Hindi and English, graduated with honors, managed to get the funds to pay for one semester and one flight to Armenia, which was um, a place where medical school was available at at, at the least expensive tuition. And 15 years later, I met him on the eve of his medical school graduation, and he was determined not to open up a practice in the West and forget that he'd ever been in the jungle, but to return to that part of the world and make a difference in terms of training the people of his different villages in health care, in sanitation, in diagnosis, and in preventive care so wow. that his people would stop dying. And this is someone it. you personally met? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I became friends with him. I became friends with him because I happened to be traveling with another international humanitarian uh, named Lady Caroline Cox, who is a global force, force majeure. She's 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 a humanitarian of epic proportions, and she's mm. a member of the House of Lords. And she and I became friends, and I traveled with her, and then I met Sasa, as I said, on the eve of his medical school graduation, decided that this was a story that needed to be told again, because nobody knew about it, and if mm-hmm. I didn't tell it, who would? And so the seven-minute short that we made um, did very well and was awarded a bunch of different things, and then um, he actually came to the United States for the first time last summer, and one of the festivals that showed the short was the Holly Shorts Film Festival at Grauman's Chinese Theater, and this was the first time he'd been to a movie theater Wow. And he saw his own film on the theater screen. It was kind of a surreal experience for us all. Yeah. Wow. And he was here in an effort to sort of, you know, build relationships with the United States organizations and, and government agencies in order to... He's basically now back where he began trying to create an infrastructure with the help of international organizations, with his own people... Um, and actually trying to work with the uh, with the government of Burma as well. So he's a remarkable young man. He's a remarkable yes. man. And um, so we have been filming all of these years, and now we are ready to um, put together the full-length documentary, which Lindsay Mofford is working on in post as far as putting together the final cut. And we will roughly see this around around what time? We're hoping that we'll be done sometime around summer, um, and then we'll see what we do with it as a full length, whether we try to distribute it on TV or whether we try to give it a theatrical or festival screenings. I'm not sure yet. Uh, It'll just really depend on what our options are at the time once we're finished. Well, you definitely have us uh, 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 involved. We definitely will do whatever... We can with the Philippe Matthews show to get that out. That is an unbelievably incredible story. Oh he's, my God! He's a very rare and and awe-inspiring person, and yet so humble and so caring. Uh, he's just—he's a great man. You know what? I—they call me the Oprah of Internet, but doggone it, you are going to be on Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> you are gonna—you are just—I am predicting this right now. You and, and perhaps it might. If it's not, if it's not the uh, the, the current film that's out, this film that's coming out. Oh, this is Oprah's stuff, baby. You are all in Oprah's camp, okay? You are what she reads. You are what she watches. You are Oprah's stuff, and I'm just saying, just throwing it out there that I believe 
And, and, and you know, I know for a fact she doesn't believe in sleep either. Uh, <laughs> so I know for a fact that you guys would probably just have a whole conversation about insomnia just in general, and then you'll be able to share this. That's what the world needs, because this needs to get out, not just on the Internet, but this needs to get out. Uh, in the in the world and 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 nobody nobody does it better than Oprah. But I predict this is going well, to be a huge huge piece. Well, thank uh, you. I'm honored to have speaking. I'm honored to be speaking with you, and I would be equally honored to be speaking with Oprah because <laughs> I think she's awesome. <laughs> she's like one of the you know she's like one of the main mover and shakers of this entire uh, era. I would say. Yeah, I would I would have to I would have to agree with you on that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, my goodness. Uh, so what's next for you and your career goals? I know it's a really crazy, nutty question because obviously you're living it, uh, but you probably in that crazy uh, sleep-deprived brain of yours uh, have other goals and dreams and aspirations. What would they be in your career? Well, you know, I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, because Mrs. Scrooge the Musical was such a success for West of Broadway, Mm-hmm. Um, and because I, you know, if, if if forced to choose, because I love theater, like Scarecrow, I love theater most of all. Um, I'm hoping that um, Mrs. Scrooge the Musical will move forward in in a in a more regional way uh, in the coming years. Um, we have a pretty pretty wonderful composer and arranger who's been doing the songs with me. And um, and as soon as we've completed what I believe to be the entirety of the of the song repertoire, I think that we'll be out there trying to get a regional um, regional backing for Mrs. Scrooge. Which mm-hmm. nice. you know, we got such wonderful wonderful reviews last time we put it up that I just I felt like we needed to wait until everything was completely ready to start you know to start moving it forward. So that's my mm-hmm. one my hope for that, and that brings a tremendous amount of joy to families who see it, and that's the most fun of all, sitting in an audience, watching an audience, enjoy something that you've put together, and, you know, sort of gasp in horror when they're scared and mm-hmm, cry mm-hmm. when they're touched and, you know, laugh and clap when they're happy. is just one of the best feelings ever. Um, it totally is. <laughs> so I'm hoping that Mrs. Scrooge will, will make a splash in the next year or so. Um, and then, as I said, I was hoping that Finding Hope would, in its different incarnation, end up as a television series. So we're still working on that. Um, nice. And then I just have also returned to a number of the um, screenplays that I've written over the years. Mm-hmm. There's just been a there's been a an increased interest in looking at my work because these were things that like won awards and then got options and then. You know, this is kind of what led me to make my own film to begin with, is that, you know, there's so much that depends on the serendipity of others that when you're just the writer, that I mm-hmm. decided to take matters into my own ha- into my own small budget hands when I decided to become a filmmaker. But because of the renewed interest in my, in my scripts, um, I'm going to see whether there are a couple of those. I'm going to send them back out in the world again and see what happens. Because Dust can't. them off the shelf and put them all up back out there, darling. I, I, I mean, anything that comes from your mind needs to be in the world, okay? Just know that and don't worry about it. Just whatever you might have, probably a hundred screenplays, just put them out there because it's all going to be awesome. Well, <laughs> if it's in the mind sir. of Diane Nam, it's going to be awesome, okay? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is a lady that's got still ten new children's books coming out between now and 2013. Uh, I mean, just, you're just amazing. <laughs> you're just amazing. I just love you to death. and uh, Not even to death. I love you to pieces. That's better. <laughs> and uh, would love to have you come back on the show anytime just to talk about anything that you're doing uh, well, because you. whatever you're doing is going to be great for the world, and the world needs greatness right now. And uh, doggone it, you're great. So well, thank you. Thank you. For showing I up in this time. Just let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievably amazing. I won't sleep tonight. I'm gonna tell my sweetheart. It's like I just talked to the most amazing person. Oh my no, god. I, I, 
that, thank you for saying that, but I really, the secret is you do have to sleep. Because you know what? When you sleep, a lot of stuff gets resolved. <laughs> that is so true. I know. It's, it's, that's true. Because all of this stuff comes up from, like, sleeping. You wake up like, oh, my God, i got to write this down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. That is so I true. Amazing. I in productive sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! All right, Diane, uh, give the way. Is, are there any web addresses or anything that we needed to, or that we forgot about? Uh, I know West of Broadway. You, the uh, the film the film website is LadyOfTheCanyon.com. LadyOfTheCanyon.com. Uh huh. And the um, the WestofBroadway.org. WestofBroadway.org. Got it. And that's the theater. Um, and those two sites are pretty, and I have Facebook pages, which I would love people to, you know, hit me up for, either the Diane Nam public figure page or the Diane Nam personal page or the Finding Hope page, the West of Broadway page. I've, everything's got a page. So Everything has to have, have a page. And you can find me on Twitter and every, all, every LinkedIn, all the social network things. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right, my love. I, I can't wait for you to come back. Just make the make the commitment that you will, uh, and uh, then I can then I can actually speak tonight. <laughs> I would love both things to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my love. You have a wonderful, wonderful day, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and blessings to you, and can't wait to get you back on. Well, thank you, and the same to you. All right, my dear. You take care. Okay, bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.